I heard a story about Gladys and Rhonda. They walked along the sidewalk after church. They were on their way home, thinking about meals planned for later in the afternoon and casually discussing the morning service. That was a great sermon on patience, remarked Rhonda. Gladys replied, yeah, it was. But he went five minutes long. (laughs) Yes. We have a new little puppy at our home. She's just about nine or ten weeks old. Her name is Honey. She's a, a, a beautiful little dog. But, you know, she's in training, and one of, the, one of the funny things is to watch Honey wait for her food. Um, you're pouring her food, and you've got to get her one of those bowls where she doesn't just gulp it all at the same time and just destroy herself. So one time I was trying to get some food for Honey, and before I could even put the bowl down to the ground, she knocked the bowl out of my hand. She was just so fired up, her little eyes, she just can't wait to get her food. But in her lack of patience, she made a total mess. And oftentimes when we're going through life and we lack patience, which is a fruit of the Spirit, we can make a mess of things. We can get ahead of God. We can get ourselves in trouble. But it's even more magnified when patience is something that we are struggling with because we have some issues or questions for God. Some years ago I saw... The March of the Penguins, some of you may remember that, and they show the penguins moving uh, towards their journey in the bitter cold. They march, they huddle together for survival, focused on one goal, where they're headed. We all need that. We need to stay focused on the ultimate goal, that is we're headed for heaven, we're going to be with our Lord. And Paul says in 2 Timothy, or in 2 Corinthians, that In light of that, we can know that things on this earth are just temporal. They're momentary light afflictions, which are bearing up for us an eternal weight of glory. And so the opening phrase in verse 7 says it all, James 5, 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brethren. He addresses the church until the coming, the Greek word is parousia, of the Lord. The word is always used in the light of the physical return of Christ. He says, Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Be patient. If you're a note taker or if you highlight your Bible, that's what you need to highlight right now. Be patient. That's the essence of the matter. And it's a sweeping statement, isn't it? Because there's so many areas of life where we need patience. We need patience with circumstances. We need patience with people. We need patience with big things and little things. We need patience in the light of freeway traffic, in the wake of, you know, waiting on maybe a prayer request. And some of you have been waiting for a wanderer. Some of you have prodigals in your life. They may be friends, family members who have gone back to the world. And you're waiting on the Lord and asking the Lord to bring them home. Patience is just such a sweeping thing. It applies to so many areas of our lives. We, we wait for so many different things. And we're challenged to be patient in so many different ways. Patience with people, circumstances, and even waiting on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of God as we wait. Especially in the face of injustice. Imagine some of your brethren around the world who are waiting on the Lord maybe for the next meal or 
maybe to get out of prison, an unjust sentence. They've been persecuted and they've ended up in prison and they're waiting on the Lord. We can remember John the Baptist who had questions about, you know, Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another as he spent, what, a year languishing in prison and then ended up giving his life. The word patience in the Greek is makrothumio. For those of you who are interested, it means to be forbearing, to be long of spirit, not to lose heart. The word patience means to persevere patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles. In modern English vernacular, the word makrothumio means to be long-tempered, as opposed to what? Short-tempered. And so the word is a, a very... Uh, complete type of word. And notice that James says, we need to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now the audience he addresses is a first century group of early Jewish Christians. They couldn't have imagined that it would be some 2,000 years until the coming of the Lord. Every generation needs to live in the light of the second coming. We're all excited about the prospects of the Lord coming, but we don't know if we're going to be that generation. The early church didn't know if they would be that generation as well. But James tells them nonetheless to look to the coming or the parousia of the Lord. You see, as a Christian, I'm not just waiting. If I was waiting just to wait, I would become discouraged and disheartened rather quickly. Because patience is not my strong suit. But I'm waiting for the Lord. And that's what makes all the difference. I'm waiting on him. Now, sometimes I'm waiting on him to give me an answer, to give me direction, to give me perspective, to give me strength. But ultimately, it's the Lord's coming that is the goal. Come, Lord Jesus, Revelation 22, 20. And some of you familiar with 1 Corinthians 16, 22 know just the one word, Maranatha. O Lord, come. And when life is going good and everything seems to be Rather, in order, I may not cry out Maranatha as much as when things are going south. <laughs> Can I get a witness? It seems like we long for the second coming of Jesus much more when life is not cooperating, <laughs> as it were. And that can be a good thing, because longing for Him is really what the Christian life is all about. Patience is indeed a virtue, but it is a challenge. We're to wait until the coming of the Lord. Some of you may remember who have been around the church for a while, Crystal Lewis sang a song many years ago. She'd sing it at the Harvest Crusades. This little, uh, sweet little lady who would come out with this powerful voice and she would say, People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. Man, I remember the stadium singing that song and us celebrating the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming. Just as there were all kinds of prophecies about the first coming of Jesus that were fulfilled when he was born in Bethlehem, there are all kinds of prophecies of the second coming. And Jesus is coming again. And I'm not sure that the modern church celebrates that very much anymore. Especially maybe in the West because we have so much to fill our time and so much at our fingertips. We live in an instant society. Things have become so quick and easy for us. And when they don't come quick and easy, we get frustrated. But waiting and learning to wait in many different contexts is important. Theologian Dale Bruner writes 
David Peterson, former pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Spokane, Washington, told about a time when he was preparing his sermon, his little daughter came in and said, Daddy, can we play? He answered, I'm awfully sorry, sweetheart, but I'm right in the middle of preparing the sermon. In about an hour, I can play. She said, okay, when you're finished, Daddy, I'm going to give you a great big hug. He said, thank you very much. She went to the door. These are his words now. Then she did a U-turn, came back, and gave me a chiropractic, bone-breaking hug. David said to her, darling, you said you were going to give me a hug after I finished. She answered, Daddy, I just wanted you to know what you have to look forward to. <laughs> you know, as Christians, we say, the best is yet to come. But I'm not sure we're always living in the light of the best. This is a call for patient endurance. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. Hebrews 9.28. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives the hill directly opposite the temple to the east. The disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And in Matthew 24, Jesus gave the famous Olivet Discourse, where he tells about the conditions that will surround his second coming. Paul picks on this theme, picks up on this theme when he says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, And that lawless one will be revealed, the Antichrist, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The idea of the coming of the Lord, the parousia, is tied to the day of the Lord. Here's what it encompasses. It encompasses the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in a darkened sky, where he will light up the sky as lightning flashes from the east to the west. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Revelation 1-7 says that every eye will see him when he comes. He will put his glory on display. And the Bible teaches that all the angels are coming with him. How many angels are there? Myriads of myriads. This is going to be the grandest light show that you have ever seen. And into a darkened world, Jesus will come to rescue his people and to repay those who have persecuted his people, those who have fought against God. And so we wait. But as Tom Petty put it, the waiting is the hardest part. And we all know that Tom Petty has now left this planet as well. And so here we are, and we face our different circumstances in this early church facing injustice. Notice in verse 7 of James 5, it says, Be patient, therefore. So whenever we see that, that word, therefore, we look back and we realize that what was happening to these uh, poor Christians is that they were day laborers, verse 4, James 5. They had mowed fields, but their pay had been withheld and they were crying out to God. And their cry had reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth or the Lord of the angel armies. The God of angel armies is always by my side, sings Chris Tomlin. And so, in these kinds of circumstances, remember I explained to you the context of James 5, 1 through 6 last time, that the day laborers, if they didn't get paid at the end of the day, they starved and so did their families. That's injustice. That's a big question mark, like, Lord, how are you going to help us in this? 
And so they were crying out to God. And James says, be patient, brethren. Until what? Until the coming of the Lord. Behold, here's an illustration. The farmer waits. And remember, these guys were involved in an agrarian culture. They were working on farms so that they could get this illustration. James 5, latter half of verse 7. James says, look at the farmer. He waits for the precious produce of the soil. And you'll notice that patient or patience is going to be mentioned four times in this little section. The farmer being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. NIV says, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn fall and the spring rains. We have to keep plowing in preparation for the harvest. And in Matthew 13, Jesus actually uses harvest imagery to describe his second coming. He says there's going to be a time of the harvest and the time of the harvest is the day of the Lord. And that's when he will bring the wheat into the barn and he will destroy those who are the wicked, the ungodly, who have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus describes fire and radical implications of his second coming. So we have to do preparation until the Lord comes. And we're involved in the harvest right now. The fields are white unto what? Harvest. We're supposed to be harvesting until the Lord comes. We're supposed to be occupying until he comes. We are to plant. One plants, another waters. But what? God brings the increase. We are supposed to be about the work of the harvest until the harvester comes, if you will. And I have to ask my question, am I? Am I about the Lord's business? Because I realize that the Lord has been patient because he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And so I have a part in the harvest right now. I'm to plant seeds, another waters. God brings the increase. I'm to be about evangelism. I'm to teach the word of God. I'm to throw the seed out and watch what God does. Many believe that James is uh, actually expositing or commenting on Psalm 37. I want you to turn there. And as you turn to Psalm 37, I'm going to read Psalm 27, 13, and 14. So you want Psalm 37. Here's Psalm 27, 13, and 14. It says, I would have despaired unless I had believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, Wait for the Lord. This is Psalm 37, verse 7. Psalm 37, verse 7. This has become a precious psalm to many of you. It starts out this way. Psalm 37, 7. says, rest in or be still before the Lord. Psalm 37, 7. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Think of these early Christians pondering this psalm. Cease from anger. And forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. In James 1.20, James says, The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And I'm sure that some of these early day laborers were getting angry and they wanted to take matters into their own hands. And when we lack patience, that's what we do. We take matters into our own hands and we oftentimes create a mess that way. But it says in verse 10, or verse 9, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. 
But the humble, think of James 4, 6, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow. James 4, 2 said that some people were even perhaps being murdered to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. We do the right thing, and sometimes we think there's going to be a payoff, and there's not, and we say, Lord, what's going on with that? But their sword, notice, will enter their own heart. Their bows will be broken. Better is the, is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Life is but a vapor. We saw at the end of James 4. It's here today, gone tomorrow. The wicked borrows and does not pay back but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I want to give you these verses in the New Living Translation because it's beautiful. It says, verses 23 and 24, says, The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. Though they stumble, they will never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. And so we can see that the farmer has to wait for the rain, and sometimes the rain doesn't come on schedule. Turn back to the book of James. He has to wait for the cycle to happen. He has to be patient. He has to wait for the early and latter rains. Most of the rain comes in the fall in Israel, from the fall to the winter months, and then the spring rains come, and so he has to keep planting and keep waiting. He has to do things and then trust in the process. And some of you need to do that as well. Trust in the process. Trust in the Lord. Submit to the process and wait on him. Uh, if, if you go out and plant a seed, let's say that you were going to plant some tomatoes in your backyard and you, you put the seed into the ground and you water it a little bit. If you come out a couple hours later and go, what's going on? There's no tomatoes here. Uh, you got to wait. We all would like to, you ever seen those, the, the speeding up of the plant growth? You know, it's, the plant goes up. Wow. Well, that's sped up. <laughs> and the Lord says, you need to wait. You see, God can work even in the waiting. Some years ago, a good brother who's since moved out of state was in the hospital And he was going through some tough times and he didn't know what was going on and he had questions, but there was someone who was brought into the hospital bed next to him and he had the privilege of leading that man to Jesus Christ. And so we just never know how the Lord's going to redeem the time. Do more than we could have expected. A young boy went to the local store with his mother. The shop owner was a kindly man, passed him a large jar of suckers and invited uh, himself to a handful. Well, uncharacteristically, the boy held back. So the shop owner pulled out a handful of the lollipops 
And uh, he handed him to the boy. When outside, the boy's mother asked why he had suddenly been so shy and wouldn't take a handful of the suckers when offered. The boy replied, because his hand is much bigger than mine, Mom. <clears throat> See, underneath us are the everlasting arm, arms, and God wants to do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so we have to wait. The Lord is sowing seed through his people into a world that needs to experience the life and growth that the gospel brings. And so James 5.8 says, You too be patient. When we hear a message like this, we can think, oh, well, James is writing to somebody else. No, he says, you too, <laughs> all of us, we need to be patient. He says, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. NIV, James 5.8 says, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. This is the second mention of the coming of the Lord and this is what we wait for. And as we wait, we're to strengthen our hearts have the resolve to put iron into your heart, says the Williams translation. We're to take uh, refuge and delight in the vindication that the second coming will bring. Jesus is going to make everything that's been wrong right again. Do you believe that? There's going to be a millennial reign of Jesus Christ. People will beat their sores into plowshares. They will learn war no more. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. The young child will play at the hole of the snake. And there will be peace in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. That's what's coming. Eden will be restored. What God intended in the beginning will be restored. And so we are to strengthen our hearts, to stand firm. Sterizo in the Greek <clears throat> means to set fast, to turn resolutely in a certain direction. Same word is used in Luke 9.51 when Jesus uh, resolutely determined to set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what he was going to have to uh, endure, but he was looking towards the end of the process. He had to face the cross, but more than that, the, the garden, the whipping, the betrayal, the desertion. He had to face the cat of nine tails. He had to endure the cross and the, the shame that went with it, but he was looking to the end that you would end up in heaven because of what he did. And so we have to endure sometimes even affliction, knowing that that process of suffering precedes glory. It's not easy. In fact, this word derives from a root word meaning to cause to stand up or to prop up. One writer says, James urges those about to collapse under the weight of persecution to prop themselves up with the hope of the Savior's return, or to lean into the Lord. This is what we need, for the Lord is near. The coming of the Lord is at hand. For every generation, we look to the coming of the Lord, and since we're 2,000 years removed, how close might we be? We've seen the return of Israel to the land. We've seen them recapture Jerusalem. How close might we be to a couple of events falling into place on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And what might we have to endure if the church goes through some of Daniel's 70th week or has to face tribulation and even face the Antichrist, depending on your view of the end times? We may have to steal our hearts to be resolute, under economic duress and persecution and the forcing of the mark and all that goes with it. 
And some of us, we sit here as those spectators thinking, well, it's not going to touch me. But the Lord says, you need to prepare your heart as well. We just don't know what's going to come our way. See, the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Romans 13, 12. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. We need to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. When we're lacking patience or going through tough times, verse 9 applies. It says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. How many of us can say that when we've been maybe in a tight place and we've been under pressure and we're waiting on God or waiting on circumstances, we start to take it out on those closest to us. We get, begin to complain, maybe even about the Lord and about other people. Imagine how strong this early church had to be with many people walking into the church and having eaten in several days and being ripped off by people who profess to be Christians. Imagine James taking the pulpit and looking out to a group of people and saying, be patient when they haven't eaten in three to four days and the checks that they were supposed to get were withheld and they've been praying and crying out to God. It's one thing when you can go out and have a pancake or a donut. It's another thing when it's hit your life, when reality has hit hard. And so don't complain it means to groan within oneself or to sigh. Sometimes we complain without complaining. Y'all know what I'm saying? Some of you know the body language of those closest to you or their sighs. <sighs> right? And somebody looks at you and says, What's wrong? What? I'm not complaining. <laughs> Yeah, you are. I've known you for 40 years. I know that's a complaint. Randy Kilgore writes, I was sitting with a group of passengers on an airport shuttle heading to our connecting flight when the bus driver was told to hold in place. It looked like we would miss our flight, and this was more than one passenger could handle. He exploded at the bus driver, insisted he ignore his orders or risk the wrath of a lawsuit. Just then, an airline employee came dashing up carrying a briefcase. Looking at the angry man, the airline employee triumphantly held up the briefcase. When he caught his breath, he said, Sir, you left your briefcase. I heard you mention how important your meeting was. I figured you would need this. If you don't get moving now, there'll be a lawsuit. Oh, that's my briefcase. Sorry. Have you ever been there before? You know, you kind of became like a little baby in the aisle of the grocery store. <laughs> and then you got a life lesson. Is this your briefcase? Is this your child? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sometimes. He goes on, I find myself impatient with God, especially about his return. I wonder, what could he be waiting on? The tragedies around us, the suffering of people we love, even the stresses of daily life all seem bigger than the fixes on the horizon. 
Then someone tells their story of having just met Jesus, or I discover God is still at work in the messes. And it reminds me of what I learned that day on the shuttle. There are stories and details that God knows that I don't. It reminds me to trust him and to remember that the story isn't about me. It's about God's plan to give time to others who don't yet know his son. And so Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. That's Philippians 2, 14 through 16. We need to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day of the Lord is coming, and the work of the harvest will be over then. And so right now we need to maximize the time. And so James says we need to chill out, give each other some grace in these tight seasons of difficulty, pray for one another, encourage one another, live a life that's pleasing to him because we all must appear before the Bema seat of Christ. We're all going to give an account for how we lived and how we loved and how patient we were in times of difficulty. And so, a couple of examples and we're done. Verse 10. As an example, brethren, of this exhortation, James 5.10, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Which of the prophets did Israel not persecute? Try being Jeremiah. Try being Isaiah, who asked the Lord, okay, after he says, I'm here, send me. Give me some details on the mission. Well, you're going to keep going to these people, and you're going to tell them, I'm going to speak to you, but you're not going to listen. Can you imagine having a ministry where every week you went into a pulpit knowing that no one was going to listen to you? How long would you last? How long would you last if you were Noah building an ark and the only converts that you had were your family in probably a stretch of 120 years of ministry? How much patience does that take? You see, these examples, uh, and there are, there's a fuller list in one book back, Hebrews 11. Take a peek. It's worth looking at. Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. Look at verse 32. Hebrews 11 32. The writer, after chronicling many of the great heroes of our Bible, Hebrews eleven thirty two 32 says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. That's who we're talking about, the prophets. Hebrews eleven thirty three: Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they may, might obtain a better resurrection. Thirty six. 
Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these having gained approval through their faith, through some very trying difficulty, did not receive what was promised. They didn't realize the promises in their lifetime is the idea. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. How many of the prophets do you think looked to the heavens and said, Lord, how long? Lord, how long? How many times do you think Elijah in his generation said, Lord, how long? As he ran away from Jezebel and even became suicidal at one point. You see, this gives me hope that the prophets were human like you and me. Because if I were to measure my patience meter in some of my own trials, I would have to say, I probably haven't done so great. Especially if the camera was on me in my hidden moments of struggle. And so we get one more example, and you're all going to resonate with it. Behold, 11, final verse, we count those blessed who endured, hupomone means to remain under, to stay constant. You have heard of the endurance or patience of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Now, if you've read the book of Job, and some of you don't want to read the book of Job because it's kind of like the title of this message. If I read that book, maybe the Lord's going to take me through some stuff. So most people who read Job are going through stuff already. And then they go, I'll see what this book has to say. (laughs) Now we know that Job was an upright and blameless man. And God began to actually boast on Job. And then the devil said, well, it's because you put a hedge about him and you blessed him. You removed that, you let me at him, he'll curse you to your face. Well, we know the rest of the book of Job is really about what happened. And Job went through this terrible time. He lost so much. He was physically suffering. And as the book unfolds, we have to say that Job complained. He said, he cursed the day of his birth, Job 3.1. He said, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or the sea monster that thou dost set a guard over me? If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then thou dost frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions. That's just a small sample from Job 7. You know, as you read the book of Job, you say, this guy, how could James use Job as an example of patient endurance? Well, here's the hope that as you go through your question marks, and I think, you know, Job had a number of questions for God. Here's the one thing that we could say about Job. Even though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I know my Redeemer lives. And at the end, I I will be with him as he takes his stand and I, I will see him in my flesh. I will see God. Sometimes we have to just start talking to ourselves about whatever's good, pure, lovely, and the hope of what is going to be restored 
when someone we love is on a sickbed or we get the phone call that somebody died unexpectedly or somebody's suffering with cancer or, or whatever it is and we go, oh Lord, how long? How long until you come and re re reverse this curse on the earth that hurts so many that I love but I know you love? Hupomone, the word for perseverance there, those who endured is the idea, hupomone. It means to remain, to persevere bravely and calmly. And there's a blessing that's attached to it. We count those blessed who endured. You can write James 1.12 there, enduring through temptation and trial. Remember earlier in the book, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. And we all said, James is not saying to rejoice in the actual trial, but in what the trial can produce. Nobody's asking you after you hit your finger with a hammer to go, I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart as blood spurting. No, 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 no. That's not what James is saying. He's saying, look, in the end, the trial can produce perseverance and strength and maturity. You see, here's what we need to know. The Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. Would you turn to the end of the book of Job? Ezra, Nehemiah. Job, somewhere near the Psalms. Just before the Psalms. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Blessed be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we can comfort others <clears throat> with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. Cast all your anxiety upon the Lord because he cares for you. Last chapter of Job is what you want. The Lord's compassions never fail, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Our champion, brothers and sisters, is coming. He's coming. Here's the end of the story of Job. Then Job answered the Lord after the Lord had given him, I think it's 77 questions that the Lord asked Job, to which he has, Job has no answer. One writer said Job found his closest communion with God in the midst of adversity. And in Job 42, Job answered the Lord, verse 1, and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand or I did not, yeah, I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye see, sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. 42, look at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before came to him. And they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. 
And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, the second Keziah, the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years, saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations. And Job died an old man, full of days. On Friday, I was listening to David Jeremiah, and I really appreciate David's ministry. He has such a wonderful heart for people. And he was speaking on God's faithfulness, and uh, he shared this story, and I steal it from him because it's so apropos to this sermon. And with this story, we'll end. There once was a young man from Chicago who went down to the bluegrass regions of Kentucky where he met and wooed a young woman who ultimately came back to Chicago as his bride. They enjoyed three lovely years of marriage. Then one day in the midst of a sickness and a seizure of pain, the young woman lost her mind. When she was at her best, she was a bit demented. When she was at her worst, she would scream, so the neighbors complained. The young businessman didn't know what to do, but ultimately left his home in the middle of Chicago, went out to one of the western suburbs, built a house, determined that there he would do everything within his power to nurse his wife back to health and sanity. One day the family physician suggested that if he were to take his wife back to Kentucky, back to her original home, that maybe something in the familiar surrounding would help to restore her sanity. And so they went back to the old homestead. Hand in hand, they walked through the old home where memories hung on every corner. They went down to the garden and they walked down by the riverside where the violets were in full bloom. But after several days, nothing seemed to be happening. So defeated and discouraged, the young man put his wife back in the car and headed back to Chicago. When they got close to the house, he looked over and discovered that his wife was asleep. It was the first time that he had saw her in deep, restful sleep in many, many weeks. When he got to the house, she was still asleep, and so he lifted her from the car, took her inside, placed her on the bed, and realized that she wanted to sleep some more. So he put a cover over her and stayed by her side and watched her deep into the midnight hour. He watched her until the first rays of the sun reached through the curtain and touched her face. The young woman awoke, and she saw her husband seated by her side, and she said, I seem to have been on a long journey where have you been? And that man, speaking out of days and weeks and months of patient waiting and watching, said, My sweetheart, I've been right here waiting for you all the time. Jeremiah says, And that is the faithfulness of God. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, he's right here. He's always been here. He's been waiting for you. To respond. And for some, he waits and waits and waits. God is so patient. And for some of you, you've been running from this God for so long, and he's been waiting for you. And the question will be how will you respond to his love?
Will you say, Lord, thank you for waiting for me. Thank you for being so patient. Well, we're going to close, but before we do, some of you may need to do some business with the Lord. Some of you may feel like, man, I'm as close as I've ever been, and some of you may feel like I'm as far away as I've ever been, and some of you may feel like, you know what, I'm ready to come home. And I think if you are ready to come home, you will find that there's a God who's been faithfully waiting for you and wooing you to himself. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your patience with us. Lord, waiting would be so frustrating if we weren't waiting for you. And I'm so grateful that you're coming. And I'm grateful that in the big scheme of things, it won't be long. And whether it is that we go to be with you or you come to rescue us, Lord, we know that you're our great champion, our great redeemer, our loving savior, and our friend. You say, I'm a father to you, and you are my sons and daughters. You've loved us with an everlasting love. You've been there when we didn't even realize you were there. With your head and heart bowed, if you need to make Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord today, make it official. If you need to rededicate your life because you've been running, if you just need to rest a little bit more in his grand promises, cry out to him right now. Don't let the moment pass you by. If you're not a Christian, it's simply this, Jesus, thank you for dying on that cross for me. Thank you for your resurrection, I believe. I repent of my sin. I'm sorry, forgive me. I want to follow you all the days of my life. If you're a prodigal, make it official. Lord, I'm coming home. Thank you for waiting for me. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. I want to know your power. And I want to be used in the harvest. I don't want to waste my life. And Father, for the sweet saints that are here who just need a word of encouragement about your love and your goodness, may you bless them, may you fill them, may you strengthen them. May they lean into you a little bit more for their patience, for their hope, and for their courage. I pray all of this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.